Welcome to Brandon Avert. Uh, today, we're delighted to be joined by Daniel Hockman, who is a practicing psychiatrist and has designed a course on addiction, which is a topic we'll be talking about in much detail today. Let's imagine that you're working in some really interesting lab somewhere and you're tinkering around and you finally figure out the addiction compound. You, you've got the best medication ever discovered that totally blocks the addiction pathway. So you've nailed it in, in rats, you did it in monkeys, now you did the trial in humans, no addiction at all. These people, you can keep offering them alcohol, meth, anything, no addiction. And so you hold these keys, right? You have this compound and you could, of course, bring it to market, bring it to the rest of the world. The question then is, would you do it? Would you bring that to market? So the intuitive answer is yes. So what would hold you back? Yeah. So it sounds very appealing, of course. And the not secret reason that I pose this is that it forces us to think very quickly about what is the addiction circuit? What is this process that we could theoretically turn off, right? That it's an invitation for all of us to start thinking about addiction as something very intertwined with what it is to be human, to, to want things, to have desires, to have what you could call cravings and, and that they're not necessarily working separately for meth and alcohol and then just some other healthy, different process when it comes to, to love or trying to excel in a job or something like that. And if, if the scientists were in the lab, to me, the answer would be, no, you don't release something like that. There's, there's too much you'd be turning off if you turn that, that whole thing off. So you could shut that down, but then you're left with not very much of life. And I would go on to say, not just not much joy and not the dopamine hits, but that we need a lot of those processes to be operating, not just to find the excitement, but just to even find, we need those things operating to seek out, let's just pick something as basic as food. So you raised some wonderful ideas on this. The first I think is this notion that addiction isn't a discrete thing that it occurs on a spectrum, as you say. So it's a certain kind of desire that one has, and it's not clear that you could separate it from healthy desires. So you might think of someone who's very ambitious, who works very hard so they can excel and they can lead a meaningful life. Um, they have this desire to do well, and they might spend a lot of time in pursuit of that activity. One might describe them as a workaholic, even say you're addicted to this pursuit of happiness. Is that different from let's say someone who is addicted to a substance, does the object of the addiction make a difference? Overall, the answer is no, not much of a difference. Um, what I find then speaking more experientially about this is that when I speak to, whether it's a couple people or a larger audience, um, a lot of people take offense to that because they're very fixed on that that object is so different than a different object, which is true. So it's a, it's really a matter of the process. We just have to be careful with our language. The process is very similar, but that doesn't mean the life of an, a workaholic is similar to an alcoholic, right? The, so the object of the addiction absolutely changes one's life course. They have different consequences and incredibly different paths. 
but the process is remarkably similar. So that's where people take some offense is if you're stuck going to the gym all the time, that's not like my heroin addicted son. That's, that's way, way different. Yeah. The outcome is incredibly different because the object is different, but the process is remarkably similar. You find the same series of things lead up to the development and you find a similar kind of challenge to, to overcome it and similar pathways out of it. So it's very similar, including similar processes down to the, down to the imaging in the brain, down to measuring these shifts or whatever the activity is in the brain. We can either even measure similarities there too. So I'm very curious then what the process is. So that's the first question I have is what is that process? And secondly, if that is how you define addiction, then it seems that if the object of addiction is positive, that addiction could be good. So you might want to actively encourage people to become addicted to certain types of pursuits. Mark, Mark suggested certain pursuits might enhance the meaning in your life. So perhaps you become obsessed with finding a cure for cancer. That seems like a good thing. So is addiction on your account necessarily bad? We have to know what someone means when they say addiction, because addiction in general is really just the description of a process where I'm feeling compelled and maybe preoccupied, you know, with attaining something and, and that when I do that, it's often short-lived. And so we could then start to say, well, but a real addiction is either a bad object or an object that there's too much preoccupation with and that there's bad consequences from. So we could start to differentiate it that way, that, that there's bad consequences that are now detrimental to one's life. And, and that's fine. I don't actually care a whole lot about how it's defined. We just need to be able to all communicate within disciplines and so on that, or research what we mean when we're saying I'm researching this, or here's the, the best way to treat it. It's a generic process to find reward in things. And then you back up a little bit. It's not just the reward in things. It's, we actually uh, feel rewarded just for even thinking about the thing we're going to be rewarded by. And people that have cravings for whatever it is, let's say alcohol, they're rewarded just by the idea of I'm going to buy it. I'm going to consume it, right? That's, that's already rewarding. And that's just what we would find in work that let's just in this scenario, imagine I, an idealistic job and, and work activity where you'd want to be excited by the idea of being able to discover something or research something. And then also a huge moment of elation if you do discover something good. But yeah, then it's a contextual thing, whether discovering something in a research lab has been a detriment to your life or not. And it's not even just the object. It's what the object is in relation to. If you discover something in a lab that might sound great, what if we change the landscape and you're married, you just had your third kid and you've been missing everything at home because you're obsessively staying in, in the lab and sleeping there. Now that's a different story. M maybe that person is now, you know, suffering some consequence from chasing something. And the same thing happens, right? You can have someone that's obsessively working or exercising. So these are behavioral kinds of addictions that are clinically acknowledged and same thing, right? If you're single, if you're a single bachelor in your young twenties and you're trying to look good, maybe there's only benefits that come from being in the gym all the time. It's a very social thing and you get ripped, but 
it's not very helpful if you've got other things you're trying to do in life. And so these are all very complicating factors. And a lot of people don't consider these types of questions when they just make it sound like addiction bad, turn it off. So here's a, an objection to this position. On your account, it seems like having children would count as an addiction. Um, so it satisfies the criteria you've given. So one of those criteria is that just thinking about it, it makes you happy. So a lot of people dream about having children, having a family. It seems like you'd spend a lot of time doing that if you're a good parent. It seems you'd think about your children a lot. Uh, you would derive the same sort of rewards. And as with addictions, you suffer setbacks, same with children. Uh, it seems like on your account, that would include having children and that would be a problem for your account. Yeah, I would just argue that it, it really just depends what we mean when we say addiction, because it, it, on the one hand, yes, you're absolutely right in that way of thinking that it consumes one. Let's assume you're a really good involved parent, not overly involved, but you know, a very attentive parent, very loving and, and very engaged. And so absolutely you want all these chemicals to be working. And you're going to be thinking of your child and show off the pictures to people at work and all this things where you're, you're always thinking about it. It's rewarding. Oh, I can't wait till I get home and get to shoot hoops with my little boy or whatever it is. But yeah, there's, you're consumed with it. You're excited leading up to it. You get it. And there's some elation that, that, that's going on when you're engaging with your kid. And so in that way, yes, it could be called an addictive process. And then just to even prove your point further to not object back is that we've got rehab set up specifically for love addiction. We've got people who are, you know, either addicted to porn, have just continual affairs, or even whether the partner is meant to be or not, that just way too much sex, too much desire to be intimate or be told by the world that they're attractive and wanted sexually. And that's another thing, love and sex and attraction get intertwined. But that whole thing just proves out what you're saying. That can either be an addictive process or in the right context, it can also be very appropriate and very healthy. Let's measure what I was laying out before. Is that person with the child? It, it, let's look at that landscape. If they're preoccupied with their child and then they have so much love to get when they're together and they feel elated by that, and then they chase that over and over, is that coming at a consequence to the world or themselves, or does it work? Does it fit? Does what that, does that behavior fit in the world? And I'd argue if it's done correctly, it fits. And therefore I would not call it an addiction. So it seems like there's a couple of ways we can think about addiction. The one is to describe it neutrally as you talk about an addictive process and that you could have different objects, which we think of as healthy objects or unhealthy objects. We could think about the consequences that happen in your life because of that addictive process, which could be positive or negative. As you say, it could assist you in finding a cure for cancer, or it could consume you to, to the exclusion of all these other things that are valuable. I wonder about this, that there's different orders of desire that one can have. So the addict has a primary desire for that object. So they desire the alcohol or they desire the love. You could have a second order desire, which is to say, I want to have this desire or I don't want to have this desire. And we often think about the troubled addict as someone who says, I want the heroin, 
but I wish I didn't want it. I wish I didn't have this desire because it excludes all these other things in my life. Now, you could have a situation where you've got the heroin addict who says, I want the heroin and I want to want the heroin. And you might think, in other words, either there's no problem in that situation, there's no conflict of desires, or this person is deeply trapped by their addiction that they can't see the problem with it. So yeah, I like the way you're putting it. It's, it's like a mental level of desire. And, and that happens all the time. I, I mean, the simplest form of it that tends to come up is I want fast food or I, or I want a piece of cheesecake, but I don't want to want the cheesecake. And so we're asking ourselves two things at the same time. And, and the same could be said for alcohol or any sort of typical bad drug of choice. We're beings that, that we embody very conflicting desires and that, that would be too. They're not necessarily on equal footing because we're using the word meta there. There's a desire, but then there's a meta desire. And, and so they're not exactly equal footing, although it's not necessarily clear which one we should follow in those cases, because we can be sometimes overly constricted, restricted, and, and overly neurotic sometimes about our desires. And so it's not immediately obvious that we always follow the super ego or the, or that meta desire. I'll just say that, but, but yeah, there is this conflict there that becomes that person's story and journey is to sort through that and reconcile the discrepancy there because you could go on in an oblivious manner and say, but I love the cheesecake or, but I love the alcohol. And then, so that primary desire wins. But then there's a secondary one and how often is it there and how strong a case does it really have to say, Hey, but it's bad. And so that meta desire, there's a relationship there. And that's the, the archetypal angel and devil on our shoulders as well. There's a part of us that really wants to be sloth or we want to, to consume and it's the devil on us, but the, the angel is some meta level, which often is embodied in the idea of God right? That there's some rule out there that I ought to not do this thing, or I should, you know, do this thing. And so reconciling that then becomes one's journey. What do I do about that conflict and uh, overcoming that and having the relationship to ourselves and having the dialogue inside of ourselves becomes the very story and journey of that person's addiction. So the other thing that I like about your opening thought experiment is this interplay with the notion of freedom. So there's a movie called Clockwork Orange, where one way of dealing with someone who's a violent offender is to make them undergo a form of therapy where they feel absolute revulsion, um, in when thinking about sex or thinking about violence, and so they're no longer free to perform those bad actions. And you've got a similar thing with the addiction case where you're saying we could remove your freedom to become addicted. But therein lies this interesting paradox because we think about addicted people as being unfree, as being slaves to their addiction, as not being able to act in accordance with their second order or meta desires because the primary desire drive is so strong. So there's some sense in which you could remove a freedom to open up other freedoms. You, you start off with a, a chemical case for it and you talk about all the costs. Assuming we could have a very refined chemical, which was only going to deal with the negative costs so that you could 
be quite precise in terms of jigging those desires. Should we do it? And the second one is, does it make a difference if it's done not through a chemical process, but through some other kind of psychological process? That is what good therapy can do is then through words directly address only the destructive part of that addictive process. So that's exactly what I do here in this room. And exactly what I do in the self-recovery program is help people work through these conflicted things so that it's, you express desires in the healthiest of ways and manage them in the most appropriate ways that are good for you as you decide to see fit. But yeah, if you could find some chemical and, and alter this thought experiment and say, it's going to only affect my, my desire for alcohol and math, or you could dial up whichever ones have ever been an issue or could be an issue that you want nothing to do with. I want nothing to do with math. I don't see a, a time in my life where I'm going to want math. Now, maybe there's other things you leave room for like alcohol, but if you could dial in just what you wanted, I would absolutely want that available for people. I wouldn't want to inject kids with it at birth. I do believe that we should have more choice than that, but would I want that available for people? Absolutely. And it's because I don't take a view that everyone's got to do everything the hard way all the time. So yes, there's a lot of value to be had in the journey that we were referring to just minutes ago, the journey of having to reconcile our different desires, one could take real joy in that journey and it's a challenge and there'll be setbacks, but that's what a good life is, right? Is that we have something we're trying to do with ourselves and we need something to push against to live a rich life. And so if for that person pushing against their addiction makes them feel like they've got a, a life worth living that they're pushing against, then, you know, you let them do that. But if they're knocking on death's door, probably you want to put enough guardrails that they can find themselves again. I wouldn't want to have them try and get better, you know, in the midst of the, the worst part of a heroin addiction. So on your account, is addiction something that's inherent to a person or is it a behavior or some combination? So something that addicts will talk about long after they're sober, perhaps for many years, is that they call themselves addicts. So they'll stand up in a 12-step program and they'll say, hi, I'm such and such, I'm an addict, even though they haven't touched the substance that they're addicted to for, say, 10 years. Is that correct? Is it correct to say of someone that they're the addict? Or is it just the behavior that's addictive? And once that behavior is reduced, and perhaps you want to combine with that behavior, certain mental processes, so compulsive desires, thoughts, et cetera. But once the behavior is gone, then they're no longer an addict. Or is your view that they are an addict? Yeah. Part of what you're referring to there is the 12 step model and that how they've really adopted the disease model, which would say once an addict, always an addict, you attained this characteristic or label diagnosis. And, and then you have that now forever. The data doesn't support that. So the data supports that there is a return to the normal level of risk of the general population. So people, statistically speaking, we have the research to say it's, it's not as if once an addict, always an addict. And this is also just through experience with patients 
very true. There are you know, a lot of people who attain good sobriety and they are good. There are though people who don't get good or they get sober and they're what, you know, it's called a dry drunk, for example, is a term for someone that's you're sober, but you're not well. You're still maybe going through these addictive processes, so to speak. So the, those options exist. There are people who have gotten sober, but they're still an addict, so to speak. But there's also a lot of people who are no longer by any definition, either by frequency and amount of use and sobriety, or even by way of thinking and way of living. And so they've managed to find, you know, good health. And so in that way, no, you know, I, I wouldn't ever automatically say once an addict, always an addict. I also like to be very careful with how we use the terminology because how we describe ourselves has a lot of influence over what we end up doing. If you take a little kid and you say he's just a rotten child, or you just even more subtly suggestive, oh, my little Jimmy is always just so crazy sometimes. And the child starts to think, yeah, maybe even it's cool, right? I'm a little crazy sometimes. And maybe they take a few more risks or feel like they can get away with a little more because yeah, my parents think I'm a little crazy sometimes. So then, so words have a heavy influence. So when we have words we're using with ourselves or that we keep telling other people, it has an influence. And so sometimes that's a good thing. And saying I'm an alcoholic is a form of humility saying to the world, I, I could go wrong here any day now, even though I think I'm good. And so that could be helpful, but it can also be harmful right? To keep telling people I'm an addict and you're not anymore. And why are you thinking of yourself in that way? A more particular, I like to be specific with language. So you could get up there and say, I used to drink a lot, but I've found good health now. And here I am to keep working on myself. I, I would fully support that. If you were mean before, you wouldn't want to keep introducing yourself as a mean person. That would just be weird. Yeah. So I, I like this move to say that you know, you're not emblazoned with a particular character trait for all time. There's a couple of ways in which you point out that this, there's a troubling way of describing it. The one is that it's just false. In other words, if you no longer imbibe the substance or have the desire for it, uh, it seems false to describe yourself as an addict. It seems fair to say I was an addict. The other one is the sense of saying it's out of my control. There's almost this evil demon that has taken control of my body and it's not me that's doing it. It's the addict that's doing it. And so you surrender responsibility. And you might also think that there's a problem with that. I wonder how you feel about changes in a person. If someone is in the thralls of the addiction, of the addiction so much so that they're, they're consumed by either the substance, so they're drunk, strung out, or all it's intoxicated by the, their latest love object, whether they have in some sense ceased to be themselves, whether they really have become a Mr. Hyde instead of their Dr. Jekyll. Yeah. That really just begs the question, is there a real you? Is there a default? Is there a default mark, right? That then if someone entices you to another country or another profession or alcohol, is that a deviation from some default pattern of you or, or, or is that in that instance, who you are, who is the real you? Is there this concept of a default unified you? And then when you do these other things, it's like, it's not you, or do we take on a way of thinking that says anything you do at any moment is you. And, and I really have to go with the latter. At the, at anything we're doing, we might want to remain 
keep an intact idea of this healthiest version of ourselves, and then say, no, this aberration wasn't me. That, that was, that was the worst part of me that was just one weekend of the whole year. But no, it was still an expression of us. It still captured something. Even if other people enticed us to drink too much and we did something really stupid, we could still say in that moment, you know, that, yeah, you were drunk and it wasn't really you that said stupid things that day or that night, but there was maybe something expressed, which in that case could have been that you were trying to get along too much, that, that you didn't want to say no to the sixth drink. There's still something about that person always being expressed, even if it's just random bad things happening to you. And you say, that wasn't me. This truck hit me and now I can't walk. That's not me. Then what, then what is you? What are you if you're not this, you know, one person who does things at any one time? So yeah, to me, a lot of it is an attempt for, and a healthy attempt to keep a nice, healthy, intact version and story of yourself that sometimes, unfortunately, doesn't bear up. So it raises some interesting questions around authenticity. Um, so if you think authenticity is important and becoming who you are is important, then that's going to raise some paradoxes here. Because if you're saying that who you are includes this addictive behavior and having that sixth drink and doing what you do after that sixth drink, if that is a part of who you are, and if you think that authenticity and being who you are is important, then it raises the question why you would stop that behavior at all. I can see the value in your position, which is that you're trying to get people to take responsibility for what they do. So it's not just something that happens to them. They're not a victim of that sixth drink. I understand that. But it does then raise this problem of authenticity. If authenticity is a good thing, and if this behavior is part of who you are, then why change it? Yeah. I there are a lot of things that we have done or that we would say is a characteristic, but if one is, let's say a liar or too impulsive, those would be a couple characteristics of just a, a stereotypical addict. You could say that's the real them. That's authentically them, but they lie or they cheat and steal. But in my best sort of effort to, to help a patient with that there'd be no reason to claim that identity. So it would be true that yes, I'll be authentic. I have lied, but there'd be no reason to then double down on that and say, Hey world, I'm just a liar and this is who I am. And this is how I choose to present myself tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Instead, I have lied. I am a liar as of right now. You've I could say I'm a liar, but like I said, it's probably better to say I have been lying a lot and I'm in the process of trying to become someone a little bit different, which is someone who's more honest and maybe lies at the same rate as the general public or something. So there, there would be great reason to change who you are authentically representing. So I think this comes down to a fundamental distinction between the best way to speak psychologically. In other words, if you want to not harm yourself and improve your life and live a happier existence, there might be a certain way of describing yourself or what you do that is helpful to do that. But as philosophers, what we care about most is what is objectively true. 
Now, you might deny that there is, right? You might just say all that there is is the way people describe themselves and that changes their behavior. But a lot of philosophers want to say, but isn't there an objective fact of the matter? Isn't there a fact of the matter whether you're a liar or not? Even if it would be harmful to you to acknowledge it in those terms. It might be both true that you are a liar and true that it would be harmful for you to be called that or for you to call yourself that. Yeah, I, I think this really comes down to where that person's struggles and challenges and maybe even pathology are and, and where they aren't. So that's why I gave an example earlier to say to represent yourself as an addict or an alcoholic, it might be good if you need that humility. So in that person's evolution, the continual challenge to themselves is you're never really done. You got to always be working on yourself if you want to be healthy. And so that might be helpful, right? Linguistically to remind themselves of that. But in another case, someone who's very self-defeating with low esteem, that might be a harmful thing. And so I, I wouldn't say it's just like automatic. So I don't ascribe to something called like positive psychology, where like you always try and adopt these wonderful ideas. And then with the idea being that fills you and makes you into this positive person. I do think there needs to be a lot of this, what you may be called objective reflection back from the world that like, no, you really are struggling and you really are messing up and you're really addicted to this substance. So the world reflects that back and we have to be honest with what that is that we're receiving. True. Some of it is relative, right? The, is what we're saying we're addicted to, does it fit or not in the world? So some of it's contextual, but most of the time it's pretty darn obvious very quickly. If you're just getting wasted every night, even if it's in a vacuum, you know, that we would mostly agree, objectively speaking, that's just bad. It's just hard on your body. It's not a nice existence. And so whatever way the world reflects that back ought to be integrated with one's idea of themselves. But I still wonder whether we're speaking past each other here, because I'm not asking what is the best thing for the person, for the patient, for the addict. I'm not asking would a, a more objective look at their lives and if people reflected back to them in a more objective way, would that be good or bad for them? I'm saying that as a philosopher, I want to say there's an objective fact of the matter, whether they are an addict or not, whether they are a liar or not. So the philosopher wants to put the label on, right? even if that's unhelpful. And the philosopher is not saying, I need to tell the addict. They're just saying from a God's eye view. So God looking down says, I mean, I, I'm an atheist. So I don't think God exists, but from a God's eye view, looking down, God looks at that person and says, aha, he's an addict. Even if God never tells the addict, would you agree that there's an objective fact of the matter, whether someone's an addict, regardless of whether telling them that would help them or not. And it might not help them. The analog here is this is what we do in research. In research, we have to be as particular and discreet as possible around what is the population we're selecting for when we're researching. So you have addiction, but we've ruled out people with psychosis and we've ruled out people with other diseases and so on. And so then, or, or they've already detoxed or something. So we, we have a bunch of rules. And now you've qualified that's part of what influences and goes into what we call a diagnosis. So then you've reached this diagnostic criteria and it's very strict. And so 
In some diseases, we have objective ways of measuring that. In mental health, we have to rely on their subjective report more often than not. So um, the number of drinks might sound objective, but that's usually still being reported. It's usually not observed in a lab and we don't generally you know, get that big brother on people. So it's usually by a, a report. Okay. But let's just pretend that's collected perfectly for, for the sake of this. What you're saying is what we do in research and that is what should be done. So I'm just saying it should be particular, right? So if you're going to say this person's an alcoholic, like it or not, doesn't matter the landscape, they're an alcoholic. I would say we can only do that. Like the, the idea of doing that or not rests on a necessity for that there needs to be a particular idea for what you're saying is addiction. So even just drinking, let's take that as an example, if we want to play with it, what would you propose at what point do you call someone addicted to alcohol? This is a question we struggle with in the field. How would you define that? And just make it up. Don't worry about saying, but what would you propose? Yeah, that's the big question, right? That's what we wanted to ask you. The way philosophers would put it is, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for this thing called addiction? Yeah, I mean, that's quite a, an uncharitable way to ask the question because a lot of philosophers think that we start there and ask, well, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for something? Yeah. And then we realize that it's very complicated and we can't get to those. And so it's more, more sophisticated and more vague accounts. But we first ask the question, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions? So I'll give you a loose account of what I think addiction would be is a dispositional account. So in other words, if you want to understand whether someone's an alcoholic, you don't look at the number of drinks they take. It's a counterfactual question. The question is, if you were to put them in a situation where they were imbibing alcohol, how would they react? Would they react in such a way that they don't really care whether they have another drink or not? Or would they react in a way that once they've got that alcohol in them, that they need another 30? That sounds like an alcoholic. But it's not in the drinking on the t dispositional account that the addiction lies. So it's not purely behavioral. It's in the disposition to that behavior. Yeah, perhaps I'll share my definition of addiction and we could play with that. I define addiction as a learned or trained pattern of going outside of yourself for pleasure. So there's an intolerance for one's state and to go outside of yourself the outside world, whatever the object is, to seek pleasure, to seek some escape. That's how I would define it. So I had always thought that Jason was addicted to masturbating. So I'm very glad to know that on your definition, that's probably unlikely because he's not leaving his house for that. But I assume that if he was throwing himself into orgies on a kind of regular basis to get away from the various pains that are overcoming him, we could describe him as an addict. Yeah, if there was an escape for pain, I would have to agree. I wonder about this, to return to an earlier topic about thinking about the nature of someone. If we think about Aristotle's account of virtues and vices, that it's a way that we understand someone's character is partly through their behavior. So if we think about a generous person, to be generous is to engage in acts of generosity. To be a, a wicked person, to have that vice would be to engage in certain kind of sinister activity. And we might think about addiction as a failure of temperance that the virtuous person is temperate, that they know what the correct amount of an activity to engage in or the correct amount of a substance to engage in. If they swing one way or the other, that there's a problem. So someone who 
abstains totally from all the joys of drinking and food and sex, we might think is missing out on the good parts of life, that a life devoid of pleasure like that would be a vice. But to overindulge, to always be strung out on drugs, maybe to be moving from one sexual partner to the next in a way where you feel compelled to do so would be vicious behavior and that what you want is to walk the golden mean. You could think of it like the degree to which you're compelled psychologically, or we could say you've used the word disposition, right? If your disposition is one of reliance on something in the outside world to tolerate your existence, then you are a slave to that. I don't think of it as that you're a slave to alcohol or meth. I think of it as you're a slave to the disposition, right? So you're a slave to your intense desire to escape the state of feeling that you're in at, at any moment. So that does make me think about someone who doesn't want to escape anything. In other words, the person who really just enjoys the activity in its own sake. So you can imagine the person who's a, a connoisseur of, of a drug. And so they say, look, my life's going great. And I really enjoy taking ecstasy and I try and do it as regularly as I can. And it doesn't seem to be interfering in my other areas of life. Oh, I don't have a desire to stop taking the substance, or I really enjoy having sex with so many different partners. So you've got the activity, but you don't have, as you say, engaged in the activity to get outside of yourself to avoid pain. Would we say that there's an addictive process, but that you don't have a problematic addict? I would say, no, not an addictive process. We would just have what looks superficially like an addiction, but I would not call it that. So I would, that instance, Clinically, we would usually refer to that as recreational use. So a typical example is a 20-year-old off at college drinking a lot with their buddies, and it, it doesn't so much have to do with an escapism or the disposition. It has everything to do with an experiential thing. You're trying to experience something new. You're a cohesive unit with a couple of buddies, and you're trying to experience things that are novel, and you're experiencing experimenting with what happens. Is it what I've seen in the movies or do I just puke or do I get funny and cool or am I just like quiet and boring or recreational use embodies those sorts of things. And that doesn't capture the addictive process at all in that kind of scenario. Let's say another one that comes out for people a bit older than that is using hallucinogens, hallucinogens typically aren't part of an addictive process, maybe very loosely that they don't like some empty existence. And so they're curious to have some revelation, but, um, that's a pretty loose thing, right? I wouldn't say that's an addictive process. They're just looking for some experiential thing to get out of it. So I don't call that addiction. I don't treat that. I mean, that the, the treatment for that does not then entail the whole thing that, that this whole body of research and methodology and therapeutic approach. Someone who's recreationally using something doesn't deserve a, a normal addiction treatment. It's not the same. I really like this position of yours. So this idea that what addiction is, it's the escape from suffering by seeking pleasures outside yourself. I think that's very plausible. There's a counter example that might come up. So suppose you're a cancer patient and that the pain is uh, inevitable. So it's just very much part of your life. And the only way you can gain pleasure is from distracting yourself from that pain. It seems to me like the cancer patient isn't necessarily an addict, but on your position they are. So that seems like a counterexample. 
Yeah. And that's where I wish we could not load the term. I would only guess here, but you tell me that it would only feel more like a counterexample if we're thinking of addicts as this bad thing, right? That it's, it's, it's a deplorable sort of existence. And so then, oh, this poor cancer patient who's supposed to be admirable and some hero and it, it is now brought down to this level of an addict. Really, it's just a description. We're just describing that the cancer patient is looking for an out. It's not to make a, a judgment about whether it's worth doing or not. So we could say they are an addict in that circumstance and that cancer or not, and we could say it doesn't matter. I don't care if you have cancer or not, if you're escaping the, the state that you're in, then that's addiction. But yeah, this is why I have no problems treating these stereotypical addicts. I, I think of them like cancer patients and they have gone through hell usually. They usually don't have the most wonderful childhoods. And even if they did, sometimes they get the opposite. Things that are so nice that they don't know what to do with themselves now. That's not a nice existence. But to either carry trauma and abuse, you have that with you and you've got to reckon with that at some point in life, or you don't know what to do with yourself. And cancer, trauma, I, in either case, it's suffering and you're trying to escape the way you feel in any moment. And so I don't cast a judgment as to whether that's good or bad in as much as it's either good or bad for that person. And now we're back to context, right? The cancer patient who's using a narcotics and relying on them to get out of a painful state, coming back to this idea, it fits in the world. People are still going to like you. You're still going to get appropriate kinds of attention and your story is understandable. Okay. So it fits in the world, but someone else, it might not, right? It doesn't fit. We said, no, <laughs> I don't care what your background is. If you're injecting on the streets, get out. And so it doesn't fit it, and, it, and it doesn't fit for the world or the addict. Right? So I think that's very interesting. So we ha had a previous guest, Justin Garcon, and Justin talks a lot about this fit. He uses different terminology. Our episode with him was on madness. And he looks at two different paradigms on madness. So the one is the psychiatric paradigm and the medical paradigm on the one hand, which look at madness as a um, psychiatric condition, a problem uh, with the brain, a dysfunction. And then he looks at the, at another paradigm where madness is looked at as a state of misfit with the environment and social norms. And he thinks that you could understand madness as not being a problem, not in all cases, but in certain cases as not being a problem with the patient, but a problem with society. Now, my understanding is because you're going through a psychiatric process and a therapeutic process with your patients, you are trying to help them find fit with the world. But he's arguing for a different approach. His approach is what he calls mad pride. So he says, you need mad people to stand up and fight against those social norms and to have a voice. And he wants society to change rather than, in your case, the addict. The fit thing really means that it's, it is then a question of, there's a discrepancy, right? Because by definition here, we don't have a fit. So does this come down or does this come up or middle, whatever? or you just learn to coexist like that. And there's no answer there. Is this outcast of society? Is this strange person 
do we want to just find them entertaining and amusing or funny or are there lessons to learn? They're archetypes that, that get told in that kind of story, right? Usually this misfit usually does see or know something that the rest of us don't. And so they draw out all sorts of responses. Some people hate it. Some people want to pretend it's not there. Some people attack it. Other people are scared of it. And then likewise, different things for the misfit. We either become this sort of joker. It's like a joker role, right? That's part of this archetype. The joker sees what's going on. They see these people in power doing this, but they're also mad, right? And so they could be dismissed quite easily. There's enough flaws that they can be cast aside. There is a very interesting relationship that goes on with a misfit and there's usually truths to it. And if we were to draw out this archetype in addiction, it would be something like the world treated this addict like such shit that they're trying to express to the world, Hey, like something went really wrong with me. And what do you know about what the right reason to be is, or what a good day is? This is a good day for me world. And so that's just one example of sort of the role that you're playing. You're a bit of a joker. You don't fit in, but you're also making usually quite wise statements. You have no idea what happened and are you wanting to tell that story? And there's a lot to learn in it and told in regular language and research and everything. Now I could say we have listened to them and still have listening to do, which could go, yeah, trauma matters. And so what that looks like in the addiction world is finally, just recently you have trauma informed <laughs> rehabs. To me, that's a joke. We knew this all along, but we're acting like it's new. Instead of seeing it as some inborn character flaw, we're now understanding that it's a, a, quite a learned trait and, and the evidence is abundant that it's a learned trait and not one that's entirely genetic. So we do learn from misfits, but it's, I wouldn't say it's right or wrong. It's just the way it is that a misfit stays a misfit, but there's a fight that the misfits fighting for acceptance. And then the rest of the world's kind of supposed to fight against the misfit, but there's always a couple outliers that get drawn into the story. They're sympathetic. So I'm interested in the causes of addiction. One way of thinking about it, something you've alluded to is this idea that people are genetically predisposed to become addicts. The other one is that certain substances or activities are inherently addictive. And the other one that you alluded to is there's a certain event, like a traumatic event that could dispose you towards addictive behavior. How do those three things fit together? Maybe I'll start by saying I have never met some, someone with a serious addiction that has no serious identifiable suffering. There's always a psychological suffering. And as far as chicken egg stuff that predates the object of the addiction. So very much we have evidence that shows that the object of the addiction comes after this longing for an escape. So then we can work backwards. Well, why does that person long for an escape? Well, something's gone wrong. That could be any number of things. Okay. So we could take a, a most sort of simple example in this model of they, they suffered a lot of abuse, maybe molested sexual abuse or physically or a very punishing, critical environment. The way I put it usually is just describing it simply as life is not fun. If life is just awful, you've got your beginnings of suffering 
And then all the cascade of events, you probably didn't commit yourself to school and academics, or you probably didn't get along with other kids that didn't understand where you were coming from. And so you then have this unfolding there. And so you might not develop socially how you would have hoped or academically, but then also emotionally an intolerance for emotional states, because you just get more and more pissed off. You get less and less equipped with how to deal with what you're going through. Whatever that bad environment or person or circumstance is that causes suffering was not going to also teach you how to get through it. And so when you suffer, generally that child doesn't also learn how to get through that. And so they're left suffering and without the tools to get themselves out of it. And so that's in a nutshell, how that this model for how it develops. And then that also describes why it's harder to get out of. You can't just remove the substance and expect that they're well, you can put enough contingencies in there. Like what happens at rehab, if it's a well run enough rehab, they don't have access to stuff, but you plop them back outside. And that's why you have a 95% chance of relapse that, I mean, that they just don't work because you remove someone from an environment, but you can't remove them from themselves, but you have to heal whatever is going on inside of them that's suffering. The genetic piece I can also speak to research quotes, very different things. There often the number of people arrive at is that it's like 50, 50, it's a nice whole number. So people say it's 50% genetic, 50% life. And, but yeah, it, it, it's not near 50%. And I would also, there's a lot of studies I could go into, but maybe the simplest argument I'd make is that genetics have no way of deterministically causing us to drink or use a drug. All, all genetics do is inform certain attributes of ourselves. Personality dimensions are heavily genetic. So one might be impulsive, genetically speaking, but impulsive doesn't need to be um, materialized in an addiction. Impulsive could also be that you're entrepreneurial, for example or you speak your mind, those are impulsive things that have nothing to do with what we would call addiction. So genetics has a role, but at no point could any gene cause you to partake in a substance. The substance itself, is that the kind of thing that we can think of as being inherently addictive? Yeah, absolutely. There are substances that are way more heavily addictive than others. Nicotine is very addictive. Look around the world and you see that. And we have very addictive substances. We have very non-addictive substances like hallucinogens that are considered illicit drugs, but they don't really hook people like heroin and meth. And, but the same happens with non-drug things. We can get addicted to food as well. Food lights up the same dopamine pathways more so than cocaine. So yeah, we can actually measure these things and try our best, although it's not very easy to put them on a continuum. Put someone with suffering and without the skills to tolerate their suffering together. And then you add something very addictive and that's a bad story. I worry philosophically about when you talk about going outside of yourself, um, to find pleasure, exactly how you define the confines of the self. So a lot of people would, for example, think that going outside of themselves to relate to a partner or their family, 
um, is not really going outside of themselves. They consider their families to be part of their self bubble. So they wouldn't consider deriving pleasure from their families to be addictive, even if they were running away from pain. You might want to extend that further. A lot of people feel that their journey in work is part of themselves. On the other hand, you might want to shrink the self and say who you are is just what goes on in your head and not things like masturbation. That's still not part of yourself. It's still your body, which is outside of yourself. So you're going to have this definitional problem of deciding what's included and what's excluded. And that's going to include or exclude certain cases as addictive. And that's just, that's going to be a taxonomical problem for you. We always do need to use language that can be most readily understood and accepted and worked with by most people. Okay. So there's a design to any words that we use that it needs to land well. And so I can tell you the, the definition lands well, that people can immediately understand a lot of things just based on that one sentence. It tells people that they're. There is a process in me that's been trained. So they immediately understand a lot of, okay, it does develop. I'm not inherently a bad person. I'm not immoral. And then that they're seeking pleasure. Okay. That's the pleasure. They understand that their addiction is very momentary, false pleasure. And to escape intolerable states or emotions, well, they understand what that means. So it's pretty easily understood. Um. But yes, then, you know, if we're sitting here on a long form podcast, absolutely. Then we push that and entertain the idea of what the hell is outside of oneself. So that doesn't fit well for a quick public message, but here, yeah, let's entertain it. I would submit to you, there's, there's really no way of ever saying self and other let's pick the most strict definition that it's just me. When I'm sitting still and I'm thinking about my problems or trying to tolerate the problems, maybe just sitting still, maybe not even thinking how self is that it's pretty darn self if we were to put it on a spectrum, but as a psychiatrist, I said, that's still not a self. You're still carrying with you every single concept that's ever been had in the world that got to you. How self is that? It's a lot more self than injecting heroin, but it's still not self. There's no, I would never claim that there's some pure self ever, ever. I mean, never. <laughs> yeah. It's just laughable to me that you could ever claim anything self because everything that makes us up, literally everything has come from the outside, the sperm and egg that you come from. So that's the literal part. Everything that you've eaten and consumed, the air you're breathing, all the toxins or nice things in the environment, but as the gradations go out, like it's none of it's really you. And so I don't really even like to ever imagine that there is some distinct self. But then you've got a problem for your account, right? Because your account is that it self is part of the account. It's the idea that you go outside of yourself to access pleasures, to avoid your suffering. So. If you have this porous identity, you, if you have this porous definition of self, the addict's going to say, you know what? I identify with that heroin. It is part of me. It's so much a part of me. Now you could argue with the addict and say, it's not part of who you are, but then you're going against what you just said, which is to say, there's 
this clear definition of what we could say that person has gone farther outside of themselves than going for a walk or meditating or finding something strong closer to them, maybe a partner to get through an intolerable state. So we could say they're going farther away from whatever set of measures we want to have to say that they're farther from just them. But I don't see a need to draw a line in the sand for outside, inside. But coming back to then, if you say, then why do you define it that way? Because we need to functionally. We cannot be long form in everything we do. We're only using the constructs of our language. And so if we're trying to be in keeping with language or a construct you have about self and other, well, then that necessitates more language to define it. But that language in the first place is already a mishmash, right? There's, we only say, I did this myself because it's a quick, easy way of saying I did it on my own. Did I really do anything on my own? No, I've learned everything that I ever have from other people and the things I think I invented, maybe I actually saw somewhere else, or maybe I did invent it, but it's nearly the conglomeration of other things that I've learned. So there's, you know, there's to me, there's no distinction. There's a problem now because your account is not the only one in town. So there's competing accounts. So one of them would be a pure behavioral account. It would say, what addiction is it's people taking harmful substances regularly in ways that disrupts their lives. And that account will not suffer any of the problems yours does. So one of your problems is this distinction between self and not self. Another one is this problem of over-inclusivity. You're including a lot of cases that people would not think of it as addiction and you're including them as addiction. Now, I understand that your account might have the psychological benefit. In other words, if you present this account to, to addicts, they might be more likely to be treatable. And that's a good thing, but it just might be false. In other words, it might not be the correct account of what addiction is from the God's eye perspective. Do you want to throw an example out and we can put it through any of this? Well, the two types of examples I have are the over-inclusivity. So you want to include people as addicts like the cancer patient. And even that, I'm not suggesting to the world that we call them addicts. That's only in response to, to the case that you propose, right? So it's an addictive process to go outside oneself to escape an intolerable feeling. Okay. It's inclusive. Sure. But I, I don't think of it as inclusive or not. It's a description of a process. It's an addictive process. Now that process is a process. It's not a diagnosis. And it also doesn't compel the medical world to treat or not treat that as addiction. It's merely the naming of a process. So if we have a way of defining what's mean, it's not telling everyone that you have to do or not do something about this mean person. It's just to say, here's what we're calling mean. So process is different than a diagnosis or a public health measure. So it strikes me as useful to be able to have a, a non-normative account of things. In other words, you're not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. That's one way to do things. And the other one is to say, you might think that this is negative, but uh, that doesn't mean you ought to regulate against it. As you say, it requires a diagnosis. I, I wondered about this, this situation, which is, let's say someone who is tormented, seeks an escape from the torment and goes for therapy to do that. 
And you might think, well, that's, that's an account that matches it. In other words, they're seeking someone outside of themselves in order to escape the pain. But we think of that as a praiseworthy thing. You might even describe someone as saying they feel compelled to go see the therapist. They get itchy if they don't see their therapist every week, that they think about seeing their therapist all the time. And then when they do, it does actually work. They are able to escape their pain. Nonetheless, we would think of that as a good thing for them to do. We might think about someone who, as you say, meditates. So there's an interesting sense of escaping the pain, whether it is going internally or into some other kinds of state to escape it. But again, we might think of that as a good thing. I suppose what's interesting on the diagnosis front is, Jason alluded to this earlier, whether the method that you use for the escape generates negative consequences. So in other words, if you seek alcohol to such an extent that it derails the rest of your life, then the method you've used for the escape is dangerous and it requires diagnosis and treatment. But let's say it's just having you know a beer at the end of the week and it leads to the escape, we might say, well, there's no negative consequence and that's a, a perfectly good thing to do. Yeah, well, we ran with that example. Technically speaking, there might be some form of escapism in just one beer at the end of the week. And I think we could all agree, functionally speaking, that will fit with the world, right? You go out with a friend or it's on your own and it, and it works. And it's also not going to cause liver damage. So it fits, it works, yet it's some form of escape. And, and today I say, yeah, we're all escaping to some degree every day with things. I, I like to confess to people, I've got Snickers bars stashed away next to me here. That's a form of escape. I'll tend to have a Snickers bar when I'm wanting to get through a moment. Now, not always, I might just be hungry, but yeah, let's say some of the time I'm trying to escape. So escaping from our state is not necessarily automatically good, bad, and has to be evaluated through a lens of does this fit with the world for me or not? Having an occasional Snickers bar or, or can fit, it can fit to go see a therapist for a while, but to become a lifelong patient. Maybe in your world fits. In my view, it does not. It means that you are becoming overly reliant on some other expert on how to live and how to think of yourself and how to feel okay. So my agenda with patients is to remove myself from there. But you do find people who are strung along to become lifelong patients. We have differences in cultures around drinking, for example. So I mean, you would have not just difference between nations, but differences between households around what's an appropriate amount. And if dying of liver disease doesn't get your attention, I don't know what does. In some homes, it's okay to drink heavily. In other homes, it's really bad. And there's an overvigilance sometimes with just even any drinking. And there are very different ideas, you know, of what healthy amounts are. Alcohol is a very interesting one. Alcohol, sex, food, those are heavily debatable objects of addiction because of the contextual differences. How much is okay? And I don't care to define a certain amount of either of those or, you know, exactly what circumstance is or isn't okay, because it depends on who that person is and, and whether it fits or not in their world. So there's this Epicurean view that you should have all things in moderation, including moderation itself that sometimes the right thing to do is to do something in excess, that having those peak moments in life where you overindulge occasionally could be good. I would mostly agree with that because I see both ends, right? I see people 
where we could just say too loose and, and there's too much allowance, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or just let's call mischievous behavior. But then I also see people on the other end. It, it is such a restricted existence that they are doing everything correctly. If you were to, if you were to pick out any one thing they do, they're doing it. But you realize if you do that only, you actually become quite miserable. And so we don't actually want the, the, the best of us all the time. And, and you'll notice if you look around, they generally aren't very likable people. They're, they're people you might say, oh, I wish I could also work out every morning, but they generally aren't as attractive as someone who you can recognize is actually living at the confluence of some story that says, I'm some of this and I'm some of that, but it's not like moderation. Yes. But what are you moderating? You're moderating your desires. You're moderating amongst good and evil, correct choices and bad choices. But we, at any moment, right? We are by definition, behaviorally at any moment, moderating between those and, and where we are in that can serve us well and also be attractive. And if you are too far overly moderated or meaning the angels always winning. It's not only less attractive, but, but it's not much of an existence.